Lee, how's it going? Hey, Mike. Pretty good. Good. Uh, well, great to be back with you and uh, great too. to be back uh, with this uh, conversation that we're having. Um, all sorts of interesting stuff coming up. And, um, and hopefully if uh, anyone has been tracking with us, um, they are excited too to get going. Um, thanks for your time, brother. Really appreciate it again. And um, it's just so yeah. awesome getting to go. Well, through it's this fun to, to just have a chat here and, and uh, kind of talk about theology and not worry about the audience. It's just you and me. We're totally. here talking, having a good conversation with our coffee. I have my coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just, uh, I've uh, finished my second cup of coffee. So <laughs> oh, okay. it's just, uh, it, it might be a fast conversation from my side. You know, well, might be good. slightly hyped up, but at least you understand that's why, fine. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I realize in talking to you, I've got to stay sharp. I've got to keep it together. I've got to be okay. on the razor's edge. You know, it's going to take two cups of coffee, not one. And so we'll see if that, that plan works. Uh, it might make me slightly frantic, but, um, uh, hopefully I can, I can keep up. Um, so I, you know, just thinking about last week, um, it, it was a long conversation and I'm just aware that mm -hmm. there's a lot to talk about. So what I'm going to do is usually, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to, to, to just recap or something, mm -hmm. but in this case, as you say, you know, just, um, uh, you know, just keeping the conversation going between, uh, you and I, and then knowing that that's available for people to go and have a look at and slow down and, uh, re-listen to and everything, um, you know, that, that gives us a bit of an advantage. So I'm going to just trust if you are listening to this, um, you know, don't, don't keep pressing on. If you don't understand something, um, go look back, you know, work it through, um, flick us. A, well, I, I will say this though, yes, one sentence, the main thrust of the previous discussion was to say that I think that the law gospel contrast needs to be defined in the context of covenant theology or federal theology to clarify that we're talking about a certain brand of covenant theology that's distinct from yes. the mono covenant brand. So that the law gospel contrast is best understood in a federal or covenantal context, that is in light of the contrast between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Mm, great. Yeah. Thanks. That's, that's, uh, that's definitely helpful. And, um, on that point, go check it out, go check the previous, um, episode out. I was, it was really helpful also getting that, um, feedback on the Facebook, uh, the Meredith Klein Facebook page. That was great. A few, a few, uh, good questions and, and thoughts there as well. And, uh, that, that paper that you wrote, um, before I go ahead and recommend it, you're pretty much, you're on, nothing's changed from the time you wrote that you're not arguing for anything different necessarily. It's, you don't want to like sabotage what you're saying here, but I, I no. found that uh, paper yeah. extremely helpful. Um, the marrow, what was it called again? The marrow gospel controversy thing, recovering the marrow. Yeah. Recovering, recovering the marrow tradition yes. um, on the law. And beautiful. So basically it's a historical theological argument that the theology of the law has sort of, um, developed throughout church history where you have sort of this um you start off with this sort of awe covenantal idea of the mm -hmm. law um just law as commands and then with uh the reformers you have the beginnings of a move towards a covenantal view uh mm -hmm. even luther even even though luther himself did not clearly define the law gospel contrast in light of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace that terminology is not Lutheran, yeah. but even Luther, you know, if you read his commentary on Galatians, he's beginning to move towards this idea of mm. defining law in terms of 
the the principle that the one who does these things shall live by them and cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them yeah so the law is not just a command it's the law as a covenant of works the law as something that is calling you to obey in order to meritoriously obtain the reward yeah and so that that's clearly what paul is after when mm. he uses the term law he's not mm. using the term law simply to refer to uh the moral law the, the ethical requirements of god that that all mankind are bound to because we're made in the image of god but he's referring paul is using the law to refer to the law as a covenant of works mm. yeah you yeah, begin uh, to see that in, in Luther, and then it gets really clearly developed in the 16th, 17th century with the development of covenant theology. Yeah. So. Yeah, because you talk about the three layers there, right? So it's yeah. kind of uh, coming out of that medieval yeah. to, toward Luther, and then um, right. Yeah. What was the difference between the medieval layer and the Lutheran layer again? Was it just the fact that um, that he was just seeing the the contrast itself? Yeah. So okay. Luther, he, he focuses, he's, he's developing his law gospel contrast and his understanding of the law by wrestling with Paul and specifically right. Galatians. Right. So justification. And so he yeah. sees the law in Galatians as this thing that drives you to Christ. It, it, it brings condemnation and guilt and it drives you to Christ. Mm. Mm. So. Yeah, brilliant. So that's so helpful. Go check out that article. And you, you've uh, posted a shorter version of that. I didn't even know that it, that was around. Uh, that's good as well, because <laughs> it's quite a detailed uh, article, which is great. But uh, yeah, if you got a yeah, the shorter story. one is just called uh, "Not Under Law, But Under Grace." And so, what is it? What does that mean when Paul says that in Romans six fourteen? All right, we're not under the law, but under grace. He's not saying we're not under commands. He's right. not saying we're not required to keep the moral law. He's saying we're not under the law as a covenant of works. We're under mm -hmm grace we're under the covenant of grace yeah great yeah. um and um okay great so i mean that's I, you know i'm not sure exactly uh where you wanted to pick it up uh from that point i suppose for me just a few lingering uh points of you know just just looking at that discussion on facebook and just thinking about uh some comments and and questions and whatnot and uh just processing myself um i thought maybe it would be a good idea to kind of just um to get your thoughts on whether, you know, just starting from from uh, perhaps a Lutheran perspective, um, in what way do you think, um, now I realize obviously they don't have a, a covenantal sort of backing for anything that you're saying, but but it's almost like maybe a better better way to approach this would be like a guy like Michael Horton, who's often kind of quite Lutheran-ish in, uh, in his rhetoric uh, with law and gospel. Do, do, are you in agreement with everything that he would say or is there something that you would feel needs to be tweaked in the way that he talks about law and gospel? Um, I'm not sure if, if that's a helpful way to approach it, but I'm just trying to get at exactly where the difference mm -hmm. would lie. Um, you know, yeah, that, really if I think question. about a Lutheran sort of approach, sorry, just one more thing there. If I think about a Lutheran um, approach, it, it's kind of, it's almost like, like they're happy to say that they are, uh, you know, it's law and it's gospel. It runs right throughout, um, you know, in, in the new covenant, there's law. Law is basically anything that it's not, it's not that they're saying law is negative uh, or, or a bad thing or evil, mm -hmm. but it's always the thing that commands you and therefore condemns you. And, uh, and, 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 and basically gospel is, is just promise. And, um, 
and um, everything that God will do for you, I suppose. Now, I'm just thinking, I've, I'm almost sure I've heard Horton say stuff like that a, a lot a lot of times. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't want to pin him down for no reason. But it's just that kind of thing I have in mind. Yeah, I'm not really sure because I, I haven't read all of Horton's work on this topic. So it's hard for me to speak clearly and definitively. Uh, I don't really know what his view would be. Like, I don't know if he would, let's say he were listening to this podcast or watching the YouTube of this, would he agree or disagree with what I'm saying? I don't really know for sure. I think he would agree. Okay. Um, so for example, his book on uh, covenant theology, mm -hmm. God of Promise, mm -hmm. is very clear in defining the law gospel contrast in terms of two, two covenants, two types of covenants. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Covenant of grace and covenant of works. So I don't think he would really disagree, but you know, I think you're right. There is sort of a, um, there is a general tendency among many Lutherans and among many reformed people who are influenced by Lutheran thinking to, um, to very, to too easily define the law gospel contrast this way. Right. That you're opening your Bible and you're reading through it and you want to ask yourself, is this verse or is this passage law or is it gospel? And the way you can answer that question is you're reading along. And if it is just a promise, if it just says, you know, Christ died for your sins and, you know, these kinds of things, then that's that's gospel. But mm. if it is a command or an imperative, then that's the law. Right. Right. Now, I don't know if if we can say that Horton is guilty of that. But many people who who follow kind of this Lutheran idea of law gospel contrast that in that way they do they do talk about it that way yeah and that is my concern I don't think that's a legitimate uh, way of defining the law gospel contrast yeah. because what that does then is that it uh, takes a huge portion of scripture and I'm thinking primarily of the Christian life imperatives in Romans 6, Ephesians 4 through 5, Colossians 3, etc. All the ones that are talking about, you know, reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin in union with Christ and alive to God. Put to death your members which are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Um, all the calls that the, the Christian life imperative calls to, to live in light of and out of our union with Christ then become categorized as law. Yeah. And that is really misleading and dangerous. Right. Because then you're saying all those things are for it. All the Romans 6, Ephesians 4 through 5, Colossians 3, all those things are there in the Bible only for one purpose, and that is to show you your sin and to drive you to Christ. Right. And it's sort of taking out that third use element, which I know you yeah. want to get to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So yeah. it misses yeah. the idea that no, these are these are commands that are coming to us as imperatives grounded in the indicative of our of who we are in Christ. We've mm. died to sin in Christ. Therefore, we should put to death. We've been raised with Christ. Therefore, we should walk in newness of life. Right. So just thinking about that, and uh, I, you know, I don't want to jump ahead if if you don't want to, but um, the um, uh, you know, just thinking about that third use category, um, it seems like a lot of people that would use just law, you know, almost a, a really simple way to talk, as you've been saying, you know, everything that's that's commanding mm -hmm. is law, everything that's promising is gospel. They would just say, all right, well, 
you know, when I, I mean law in this sense, in this first, second, third use, you know, and um, and and that would be enough. Um, but you're still worried that that um, even just with that distinction, there's still this connection to a covenant of works that you're, you're wanting to get away from. If I'm if I'm hearing you right, is that is that correct? Yeah. So you you just brought up the traditional threefold use of the law, right? There's yeah. the pedagogical use of the law to drive us to Christ. There's the political use of the law in society to restrain sin, to function as a hedge, common grace. And then there's the third use of the law, which is the law as our rule of life. For those who are in Christ, who are saved by grace, it's a rule of life hmm. describing the, the way that we should live. Um, and that goes back to that paper that you mentioned earlier, where mm. I talked about the different, the development of the doctrine of the law. Yeah. That threefold use of the law is stage two. The, the first stage is the kind of medieval yes, okay. Aquinas idea of the law as just this abstract, um, the Ten Commandments are simply awe covenantal lists of moral duties. But then the reformers, Calvin and others, they began to talk about these, this threefold use of the law, which to me is a transitional point that is in between those two. It's in between yes. the medieval use, the medieval understanding, and the covenantal marrow uh, theology right. that distinguishes between the law as a covenant of works and the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's where we want to get to, is yes. that third stage. Yes. That understanding of the law gospel contrast, the law as a covenant of works versus the law of Christ. Mm. Um, that that is the that's the heart. That's that's Paul, that's Romans six, that's right. Ephesians four to five. That's the the marrow theolo- theology's understanding of the third use of the law. Yes. But that middle stage where you're talking about three uses of the law is an attempt to get there, right. but it's still kind of struggling with using those older understandings that's good that's helpful and so because yeah. obviously the first use of the law to drive you to christ that's the law as a covenant of works yes exactly yeah and the third use of the law the law is a rule of life mm-hmm. for defining what our gratitude should look like in christ that's pretty close to and and getting getting to that point where we understand the clear distinction between the law as a covenant of works and the law as it comes to us from the hands of christ yeah, fantastic. Yeah, no, that's helpful because that means, um, you know, I think just for people listening, perhaps used to that language as well, because obviously yeah. it's very well worn in in reformed circles, and um, yeah. and so you know, I, I think probably, especially especially because the big debate and the big struggle has been with dispensationalists and and uh, right, those right. Who, who want to challenge the third use of, of the law, any kind of law, I suppose, in the in the New Testament, and um, and so the kickback is always, well, what are you saying? What are you saying now? You know, and um, and at the, at the, you know, you're effectively saying, um, as I'm hearing you, that you know that that third use angle is right. It's correct. It's just that it lacks the consistent covenantal outworking and backing. But we'll get to that. Sorry, I jump ahead. <laughs> I like to keep it fresh. Keep you on your toes, Lee. <laughs> um, cool. So where do you want to go next, brother? Um, uh, what's the what's the next step for you? Okay, so we we've, we've talked quite a bit about the law gospel contrast in terms of covenant theology and seeing the covenant of works and the covenant of grace as the context for understanding the law gospel contrast. Mm -hmm. But now we need to, I think, get a little bit into uh, the issue of what is the gospel, Mm -hmm. right? We talked a lot about what is the law. Yes. And 
the law in Paul's theology is the law as a covenant of works, whether mm -hmm. it's referring to the works principle in the Adamic covenant or the works principle as repeated uh, at the typological level with Israel's inheritance in the land uh, at the um, in the Mosaic covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the law for Paul. Um, but what about the gospel? Mm -hmm. How do we define the gospel? So I would define the gospel and a minute ago, I said the contrast is between the law as a covenant of works and the law of Christ. And I want to clarify that okay. I'm not saying that the law of Christ and the gospel are the same. Yes. Okay, good. Okay. That helps. Yeah. Nice. Because the law of Christ is those Christian life imperatives. Right. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is not put to death your members which are on the earth. Yes. The gospel is not walk in newness of life. Now, it's, a, it's an implication of the gospel, but right. it is not the gospel per yes. se. The gospel per se is Christ has died, he has yeah. fulfilled the law, and he's been raised uh, for, our, uh, for our salvation. Yeah. So let's talk about the gospel. So one thing I think we need to do is, this is a very important thing, is to distinguish between the broad and the narrow gospel. So the narrow gospel is what I just said. It's Christ crucified and risen. First yeah. Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Yeah. First Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. I, you know, here's the gospel that I delivered unto you, that mm -hmm. Christ died for our sins, you know, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. Right. So that's the gospel. The gospel is it's the cross. Mm -hmm. The gospel is the preaching of the cross. Um, and so it doesn't have any commands. The gospel in that narrow sense is simply the announcement, the good news of what Christ has done for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there is also a broader understanding of the gospel that can sometimes be called the gospel as well. Right. Or it, it can be called, sometimes it's called the gospel, or but more accurately would be called the preaching of the gospel. Okay. So the gospel itself is what Christ has done. It's the report. It's the announcement. It's the good news mm -hmm. of what Christ has done for us. But the gospel in the broader sense is other things that are associated with the gospel when you preach it. And when we preach the gospel, you can't help but bring those other things in, even though they're not technically right. speaking just the, mer the the narrow fact of Christ crucified and risen for our yeah. sins. Yeah. Right. So some of the things that would fall under this broader gospel would be some theological and historical context, right? Like right. who is this Jesus, totally. right? If you're preaching about this, this crucifixion that happened, well, who is the person that was crucified? Well, he is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And so you start telling more historical background and information. That's why the four gospels are called gospels because they're telling us, this broader historical and theological context of the gospel, mm -hmm, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, the point is to get to the very end. Each of the four gospels ends with the account of the crucifixion and resurrection. Mm -hmm. But you can't understand the meaning of that unless you understand what happened before. You have to understand the ministry of Christ, you know, how he's the promised seed, the genealogy of Jesus. He's the promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, all that. Um, Mark 1.1 1, 1 is an interesting usage of this word gospel in this kind of broader sense, right? Because Mark 1.1 1, 1 says the very first verse is almost like a, I'm not even sure if it's a, a verse. It's just like a header. It just mm -hmm. says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. So what is it referring to when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think it's referring to the 
immediate narrative right there about the preaching of John the Baptist, how he prepares the way for the Messiah yeah. to come, the baptism of Jesus. So this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the historical right. narrative that right. introduces you to the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, Paul sometimes uses the word gospel in a broader sense too. For example, in Romans 2.16, there's that interesting verse where he's talking about the day of judgment on the day when God judges the secrets of mankind. And then he says, according to my gospel or as my gospel declares. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Now, are you saying, Paul, that the gospel is simply that God is going to judge the world someday? Right. That's not good news. That's that's terrifying. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. Yeah. Well, it is part of this broader preaching of the gospel. You can't preach the gospel. You can't preach the good news that Christ has died for our sins properly unless you understand that there is going to be a day of judgment. You need the bad news to make the good yeah. news good, right? Certainly. So there's some historical context that goes broader than just the narrow gospel that is also part of the gospel Yeah. in that broader sense. Yeah. Um, I think everyone would, would agree with those ideas as being part of the gospel in the broader sense. But there's some other things, too, that would fit in here, mm -hmm. such as when you preach Christ crucified and risen to people, you're not just saying, okay, this happened. Uh, just wanted you to know yeah. goodbye, right? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have a, an exhortation. There's going to be a call. There's going to be a summons. There's going to be some kind of a therefore believe, therefore receive this gospel, receive this Christ and right. learn from your sins and be saved, right? There's that yeah. gospel call that always yeah. comes in. Uh, and you see that in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Yeah, where uh, it's a very interesting verse because it uses that term gospel twice. Mark one, let me turn to it here. Mark one, verse fourteen. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel yeah. of God, and saying, "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Right. So there the word go. gospel is used twice. If you only look at verse fifteen, you would say. The gospel is something narrow, and you should repent and believe in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you look at verse 14, you realize that actually the gospel includes that part about repenting and believing, too. Mm -hmm, <laughs> right? Totally. Yeah. So. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk like this. I mean, just, you know, it's kind of fresh for me reading through a lot of John Frame's critique, so it's always kind of lingering. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just that this is exactly what the kind of thing that they would, or, or John Frame uh, representing mm -hmm. that kind of camp would, would would jump on to want to totally right. obliterate the law gospel contrast. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm seeing what you're saying as being immensely valuable in in just at one level hearing their critique and going, okay, well, you know, it, it would be wrong to exclude these kinds of bigger ideas. And yet, it's not the end of the story because there is a distinguishing uh, to be made between that and the narrow gospel, which, um, you know, again, I don't want to um, take away from where you're going, but it's just, I think that's extremely helpful, especially just having texts like that. It's very good. Yeah. So repentant, the call to repentance and to belief to faith in Christ is part of the gospel. Yeah. Pretty cool to be able to say in that, that broad, in that broad sense, <laughs> in the broad no, sense. You could have a Not little. Uh, narrow. You could have yeah. a little pause before you say yeah. in the broad sense. You know, and just get everyone, yeah. <laughs> get everyone kind of on their toes, and they go in the broad sense. Yeah, because it it doesn't make sense to just say, um, 
that the gospel is simply reporting objective facts right. without also calling us to respond to those. Yeah, amen. And and Paul himself, 2 Corinthians 5.20 is one of my favorites, right? Paul yes. is summarizing his ministry there as being a ministry of reconciliation. Mm. And he's calling people. And it's so great because the context of 2 Corinthians 5 is so clearly objective. It's what mm. Christ has done, right? Mm. Uh, God has made us the righteousness of God in Christ, verse 20, mm -hmm. uh, verse 21. He has, uh, through the death of Christ, he has caused our sins to be imputed to Christ so that he is reckoned as a sinner. Mm -hmm. Even though he's innocent and guiltless, yet he has borne our sins for us so that God could not would not then impute our sins to us, mm -hmm. not counting their trespasses against them. So there's all this objective justification language, no condemnation, Christ has borne it. We're the righteousness of God in him and all that. But right in the middle of that, what is the call? Be reconciled to God. Yeah, there we go. Be Sorry. reconciled to God. And I think that's a great uh, Pauline um, gloss right. on, on Mark 1, 14 to 15. Yeah. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the way Jesus puts it. Yeah. Paul says, be reconciled to God. Yeah. I think in Acts as well, Acts 2, 28, um, you know, repeated standing up, preaching uh -huh. the gospel, Pentecost, yeah. repent and be baptized. Everybody. Be baptized, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's like, what? what is that not, you know, is he suddenly switched over to a covenant of works there? I doubt it. No, no, that's <laughs> yeah, not yeah. the covenant of works. Exactly. The covenant of works has no possibility of repentance. Yeah, yeah. The covenant of works requires perfect obedience. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I also think I like 2 that. Corinthians 5.20 is helpful because it answers the question, why does Paul... Uh, so infrequently referred to repentance. Right. He does mention it a couple times. <clears throat> he mentions it in 2 Corinthians 7, talking about calling the Corinthians to repentance. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but why is it not a big part of his unpacking of the gospel itself? Mm -hmm. He seems to focus more on faith than on repentance. Interesting. But 2 Corinthians 5.20 brings it out in a different way. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? Right. Yeah, I mean, so just to go back there, sorry, I'm just getting uh, hung up on, on something you said earlier, which I think is incredibly helpful. It's kind of just uh, having a, a little bit of a eureka moment myself here, is, um, you know, when you when you um, you said there's no possibility of repentance in a covenant of works, um, I think that's because, you know, again, I think that's probably just the do-all and end-all for me right there, um, because... Mm -hmm it's sort of like you I've always wrestled with that at some level because you feel that you know there is a and I suppose we're getting into the conditionality of the covenant of grace element at some level now so again I'm yeah. sorry I'm sorry for always jumping ahead I can't it's always that way <laughs> real in fact, attack oh man in fact you know what I'm just gonna shut up now and let you keep talking <laughs> but anyways I, all I'm saying is I'm really appreciating what you're saying because I think that really does help to distinguish mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the the nature of the command um, exactly. you know, maybe is the best way to put it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it helps, it helps to understand that th that brings up, that ties back into my whole overarching burden, which is to define the law gospel contrast in covenantal terms. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because once you make it clear that there's no repentance, that's not even a possibility under a covenant of works. Yes then it becomes clear that repentance 
only fits under the covenant of grace. That's it so doesn't awful. fit under the covenant of works. Yeah. And therefore repentance is not some sort of, you know, like onerous burden of law that's making you feel guilty and bad about yourself. That's not yeah. what repentance is. Yeah. Yeah. Repentance is receiving the gift of salvation and realizing that this was all because of your sin. And now you, you detest sin and you desire sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. Which comes back to what you were saying earlier. And you desire also, to, to be more like your Lord. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm also thinking as you're talking about the implications for preaching, because I know a lot of the big uh, critique of the redemptive historical sort of type of sermon is that, you know, uh, they almost get a bit command phobic. Uh, and and there's just no you yeah, know, appeal right. to any of the imperatives or the particulars of the passage. And it, it ends up, uh, you know, I've often heard it said that people end up hearing the same sermon again and again without any any mm-hmm. sense of freedom to appeal the way that Paul does to certain mm-hmm. calls to, to change one's life. And, and I think that's um, a, a fair critique at some level, obviously. Um, you know, it's a bit of a generalized uh, idea there. But but I think that, you know, this for a preacher just frees you up at some level because sometimes you are worried. Hey, listen, am I, I want to make sure I'm preaching the gospel here. And um, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, and, and some some sermons will lean more toward this, you know, way than others. Um, uh, you know, obviously, if you're if you're preaching a kind of sermon that's that's really just going to tell the story and end up with Christ. Amen. You know, but there are other texts that you're dealing with that you can't help but really get yeah. into it. And uh, you want to know right. exactly where those lines are and what's what, what's gospel and, 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 and you know, where, where it is that you are legitimately uh, preaching the gospel without, without falling into any kind of le- legalism, because not you know, well, we we shouldn't want that. I know some people don't mind too uh, at all, but right. but uh, you know, anyone that's sort of on this uh, page is really going to struggle with that at some level. So I think all of this becomes gold, you know, just to yeah. provide those boundaries and and those ways to to process the text. Yeah, let me give you another example of a <clears throat> Christian life imperative that clearly. It's clearly an imperative, mm-hmm. and in some ways, it, it clearly is part of the law if we're defining law simply as the moral law, right. not as okay. the covenant of works, but as the ethical requirements that uh, are rooted in our nature as being in the image of God mm-hmm. and that are required as part of the third use of the law. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 6. Okay. So First Corinthians 6, 12 and following is this great passage where Paul is preaching the third use of the law. He's preaching uh, the third use of the seventh commandment. Mm -hmm. You shall not commit adultery, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is, if you want to use the word law now in that non-covenantal sense. Okay. Okay. This is uh, the, this is the seventh commandment, the moral requirement to, to purity. Mm -hmm. But notice how it's so rooted in the covenant of grace. It's not part of the covenant of works, the way he's describing it. All these, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So he's quoting here a slogan from the Corinthian church, right? They thought that they could engage in sexual morality because everything's lawful for me in Christ. So they're, they're antinomians. They're, they're taking their freedom in Christ to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, all things are lawful for me, Paul quotes them, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
wow, this is getting interesting now. He's calling them to obey the seventh commandment. He's mm -hmm. calling them to, out of gratitude, apply the third use to the law in their life. But it's not coming across as a covenant of works. Right. He doesn't say, oh, those slogans are false. All things are lawful for me. You're wrong. The Ten Commandments say that's not true. Mm. He says, well, I don't think that that slogan is very helpful because you might be right, but it's not helpful for me to engage in all things. Mm -hmm. uh, if I do, then I'm being dominated by something that's not right. And most importantly, I'm forgetting the fact that my body was made for Christ. Mm -hmm. My body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So he's mm. appealing to our hope, which has been secured for us by the death and resurrection of Christ, secured for us by the gospel, that our bodies will be raised one day. And that's yeah. not just a, a comfort or a hope. It's also an obligation. Right, right. Totally. It places upon us this obligation that now my body is claimed by Christ. He died so that my body could be raised. That means my body belongs to him. Mm. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Yeah. And then I love this part here. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Yeah, that's amazing. Now you tell me, is that the covenant of works or is that the covenant of grace? Yeah. I mean, look, I was just thinking, <laughs> you know, if let's say you were preaching the, uh, that under a covenant of works, right? I mean, you would say something like, listen, don't sin, you know the commandment, don't, uh, you know, no sexual immorality uh, in order to get this thing that's held out for you, you know, whether it be blessing in the right. land or ultimately right. um, this reality of resurrection. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So you're, you're basically, uh, you know, he's he's saying, you know, here it is. Do this because he's you've saying, got it already. You already have it. Yeah. You, your body will be raised. Yeah. And he's appealing he's been raised to that. As the first fruits. And therefore, since it will be raised, then you should live now in a way and use your body now in a way that is consistent with that hope. Right. So imperative, yes, absolutely. Law, yes, insofar as it is overlapping with, uh, you know, those moral uh, requirements, as you say, um, but, but not law in any way as enshrined in terms of any kind of covenant of works at all. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's uh, a helpful way to... Kind of summarize it, but yeah, amen. I think that sometimes uh, you you brought up you know the Lutheran view of this whole thing, and I don't know if that word Lutheran is really correct. I right. don't know if it's accurate. Yeah, true, true. Because Luther himself, I don't think, was guilty of this. Okay, good. But I think that there is sort of this general feeling that there's this Lutheran idea out yeah. there. Yeah. That that you're just basically ping ponging back and forth between the law and the gospel. Right. And so. The law is just there to just show you how far you fall short right. and make you feel crappy about yourself and right. all guilty and bad. Yeah. And then, oh, then you go to Christ for relief and get forgiven and reassured of your salvation and reassured that everything's okay. Yeah. And then that's it. And then, yeah. oh, and then I sin again and then I go back to the law and get all beat up again. And then I go back to Christ. I'm just constantly ping-ponging back and forth right. between these right, two right, things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's your understanding of the Christian life, then you have no place for 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, no, amen. That's right. I think that's, uh, and I think um, just a lot of the, 
the stuff that's happened recently in the wider evangelical world with, uh, you know, again, it might not be Luther, but almost that popularized sort of uh, Lutheran law gospel understanding uh, yeah. has led some led some trouble with some popular preachers and some popular teachers. Right. And and I think the, the, the issue there is, you know, it's almost like it does. You feel the tedium develop uh, in that you're, you just are unable to sink your teeth into what the Bible is telling you to do. Right. <laughs> you, know, you, just, right. you just feel like you're beaten down before you can actually read the text. And, um, yeah. and, and there's, it just lacks a, richard, a richness of positivity, um, you know, that would, yeah. that would emerge from your new life in Christ. And I think, you know, it's helpful to talk about this because I think when people feel that, they feel like the only other option then is to take a... Um, you know, a, a, an approach in Reformed theology that really does make another, pro it, it goes into another era and it does actually fuse law, law and gospel. And they feel mm -hmm. like, you know, the only way to actually take this text seriously is to is to jump into um, not only the third use of the law kind of view, but but to see it as actually an administration of grace and, and you know law and grace has always been together and you know that's the way it is now, and it ends it ends you know they almost end up in a way worse place. It, it just becomes a proper form of legalism at that point. So you know maybe right. another way to put it is that um, where people have been struggling with some forms of antinomianism, uh, you know they jump into a legalism as a result. Um, and so this is a, well, it's not a midway, it's the correct way, I think. And, and it's just, uh, you know, you need a certain level of, of undergirding to understand a property. So I'm really appreciating what you're saying, and I think it'll help. Gospel here, and mm -hmm. I'm saying the gospel can be defined narrowly and broadly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the broad definition includes theological and historical context, like the Day of Judgment, the, the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. It includes the gospel offers and calls, repent and believe, be reconciled to God. The gospel in the broad sense also, in my view, includes these passages like 1 Corinthians 6. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I, I acknowledge that 1 Corinthians 6, you know, is talking about the third use of the law. Right. It's talking about the third use of the law in that moral law sense, yes. not in the covenant, uh, covenant of work sense. Um, and so it's not technically the gospel, mm -hmm. but it is an implication of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. The gospel is that Christ has been raised for us. Right. And Paul is drawing out the implication of that, which is if that's true, and if the inheritance has been secured for you, then this is how we should live in life. So it's, in, it's indicative-based imperatives. Yeah. The indicative itself is the gospel narrow. The imperative is the result or implication of that indicative. Yeah, and so good. I want to include the imperative, the Christian life imperative, as part of the broader gospel. Mm, mm. Even though it's a command, and even right. though it actually does tie back into the law in that um, more abstract sense, yeah. and it is part of the third use of the law, it's also part of the gospel in that broader sense. It's, another way to put it is it's, first, it's Philippians 127, where Paul exhorts the Philippians to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Right. And, you know, I mean, part of the, the, the gospel is that you've been, you know, made new and you have a new yeah. heart with that desires to obey. And so that's exactly. really the, 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 the idea. Let well, me ask you a question, exactly. though. So, Sorry, go for it. You okay. first. Well, I was just going to say, you, you just nailed it. That is the heart of it, which is that one of the the off the gospel is just a promise right it's, it's that christ has done this for you but one of the things he's done for you is he's given you the spirit right yeah and to live inside of you to change your heart and yeah. to 
to write your to write the law in your heart. Like you totally, said. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And often you hear people talk about um, the Christian life as though that hasn't happened, you know. Uh, and and right. it's almost like, well, you know, when I look within, I just. I see the old man essentially beaten down by the law and now saved by Christ. Yeah. And they're talking about yeah. the Christian life like that without this reality of there being any, I mean, I realize I'm all about the remaining sin. I get it. Like I, I'm, <laughs> I feel yeah. it. I know it's true. I'm not denying it, but there is also, there's gotta be some acknowledgement that something's happened, right? <clears throat> in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the law, uh, not the law, the, the heart that you've been given that desires to yeah. obey the law. So that's something. Well, even, I, even if it's only just that you're grieved over the fact that, you're not doing this. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. you read First Corinthians six and your heart is convicted. You're like, Yeah, I have fallen in this area. Yeah. I mean, what Christian man is there in this planet who who's not going to feel a little bit convicted by that, right? Exactly. Breaking yeah. the seventh commandment through lust is one of the easiest and most common widespread ways that we fall short. But your heart is convicted by it, not in the sense of like, oh, what a failure I am, or maybe I'm not really saved. Right. Your heart is convicted in the sense of, yeah, that's true. Why would I want to take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I don't want that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, so you're, yeah. the fact that you have that desire within you that you long for this, right. to be more like Christ, to, be, to have more gospel purity and so on, is a sign that the spirit is in you. Right. And, and he's writing the law in your heart. <laughs> and rather than lead you to so, feel uh, a lack of assurance, yeah. it should it should bolster that assurance precisely right. for that reason. Right. Because, right. I mean, at the end of the day, that uh, that kind of appeal just would not have worked on you if you were not a Christian. Right. You know, right. it just, you would have been like, I, I don't care about uniting my members yeah. to Christ, uh, to a prostitute at least. And so, yeah, you just, you just, um, I know it right. wouldn't have worked on me. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. And so, you know, right. when, when I hear that and, um, and, and I feel that, as you say even if yeah. it's just a, a remorse or or a, just a, a desire to want to not do that yeah. uh, there is something there that's profoundly helpful in terms of helping me know that i am a christian and um mm -hmm. and uh you know it's 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 very different from just um that that experience i i think of luther having to run back to the confessional sort of uh you know thing all the time and, right. and that kind of just beaten down until you're in absolute misery right. kind of idea um and so yeah um, you know, that's something to talk about. What I was going to ask you, though, is just, you know, when you make statements like I would consider indicative based imperatives as part of the gospel, would that make uh, Klein break out in a rash? No, no. He would be into it, right? So Kingdom Prologue addresses yeah. this very issue. All right. I knew you'd have Kingdom Prologue close by. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Bible and Kingdom Prologue. Awesome. We got what we need. People. Well, I don't know about that. That's a little bit. <laughs> All right. Wow. It's a... The Bible and the Holy Spirit and... <laughs> oh, okay, now you've just so... made Klein the third person of the Trinity. Oh, man, I'm just... All right, I'm just I know. All right, go for it. This is in uh, the, la the latter part of the book. So Kingdom Prologue has a section at the very end um, that's focused on the Abrahamic covenant. So that would be part two, chapters three and four. Mm -hmm. And chapter three <clears throat> is his exposition of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. Now remember for Klein and Klein's thinking the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are essentially the same. Yeah. Now, of course, there's redemptive historical mm -hmm. development and so on. There's you know, promise and fulfillment. But the Abrahamic covenant is the same type of covenant as the new covenant. It's a covenant mm -hmm. of grace. And so... Uh, he has this section here on pages 318 to 320. It's okay. only 
two and a half pages long, All and right. I would encourage everybody to read it, where he talks about the compatibility of promise and obligation. Ah, excellent. Yeah, there we go. And so he's saying that he's he's dwelling on the passages in Genesis that deal with the the obligations that God called Abraham to. Right. We could okay. call them yes. Could, yes. we could call them Christian life imperatives, right? Right, right. totally. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're the things that God is calling Abraham to do. For example, um, I think it's chapter 17. Yeah, totally. Uh, verse one, walk before me and be perfect. Is that right? That's right. right. Yeah. There? I think, uh, yeah. well, close to the mark anyway. Yep. Yeah. There's a few others as well that talk about the, the, the obligations and duties and imperatives that God was calling Abraham to do. Mm -hmm. In addition to faith, there's faith and then there's obedience basically. Right. right. And so he says here that, um, Klein says a couple of things. One, that, one of the key things he says is really helpful is he says that faith and obedience are the twin gifts of God's saving grace, mm -hmm. the twin fruits of the spirit. And the relationship obviously is that obedience is the fruit of faith. Obedience shows that our faith is genuine. Mm -hmm. James two demonstrates that our faith is not an empty faith, but is genuine faith. But then at the very end of this whole section, he says more than that, it is not merely that there is compatibility between grace and obligation or promise and obligation, but rather that the attainment of the covenant blessings is unthinkable apart from this obedient devotion to covenant law mm. for such obedience is itself one of the promised blessings wow there we go man that's beautiful. isn't that it that's amazing isn't that it that that nails it right that, that nails it perfectly that's it it was there the whole time in kingdom prologue yeah <laughs> so you gotta read all the way to the end people yeah <laughs> you know what i mean yeah that's amazing excellent and wow. another key thing he has in that section that i really like is it it's a uh, talks about the, he talks about the two different types of conditionality okay so now we're getting into our our point that we were holding back from and now it's now it's just All right. bring it on but right? we got we got to leave that so, i think i think just just uh, cuz this is such a neat little bundle right okay you know i'm just thinking like it's, it's getting about an hour on my watch uh you know just to keep the youtube channel together and make sure we can upload okay, this okay. thing and all that uh you know so maybe because we've got the goal just to let everyone know as well what i have here the in terms of the outline that you've given me is the two the two headings are is the covenant of grace conditional and then the third use of the law stuff so we've kind of been hitting on that and alluding to it the whole way through but that's where you uh look oh. at it um and perhaps it'll if we if we did this uh, next section as much as I want to keep going, uh, it it might be just a great opportunity to recap and, and just hit that front and center okay. uh, in the next okay. session. Sure, um, that'd be fine. Yeah. yeah, cool. But what was the other client? You got to tell us the other, uh, and th and then the other thing you've got here is the sacraments as faith strengthening seals of the of the mm -hmm. promises of the covenant of grace. Would that be best to close off on now, or do you think it'd be good to kind of weave into the next session? Let's just close there. All right, cool. The Sounds good. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoyed. And um, I hope that if uh, that first session was a little bit kind of mind-bending in terms of just, uh, or sorry, the second session was a little bit mind-bending in terms of opening up uh, the different, I suppose, language and, and um, uh, understanding of the law gospel, that this this is um, uh, more clarifying. And yeah, I, I'm amening the whole way. This is amazing. I think it's good. I think this is helpful. Again, I can't, um, if you want more, on this um go read some of these stuff on, on upper register it's uh, you won't be disappointed trust me i mean you can thank me later and yes i do i, I will receive donations for recommending 
<laughs> recommending Lee's website. I'll send the money to him, but you could you could thank me. I, I realize the need that you'll have to thank someone afterwards. Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks, Lee. Appreciate your time as always, brother. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Awesome. All right, let me try to do my super slick play out. Uh, here we go.